Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. This is chapter eight. When Ethan was called back to the farm by his father's illness, his mother gave him, for his own use, a small room behind the untenanted best parlor. Here he had nailed up shelves for his books, built himself a box sofa out of boards and a mattress, laid out his papers on a kitchen table, hung on the rough plaster wall an engraving of Abraham Lincoln and a calendar with thoughts from the poets, and tried, with these meager properties, to produce some likeness to the study of a minister who had been kind to him and lent him books when he was at Worcester. He still took refuge there in summer, but when Maddie came to live at the farm, he had to give her his stove, and consequently the room was uninhabitable for several months of the year. To this retreat he descended as soon as the house was quiet, and Zena's steady breathing from the bed had assured him that there was to be no sequel to the scene in the kitchen. After Zena's departure, he and Maddie had stood speechless, neither seeking to approach the other. Then the girl had returned to her task of clearing up the kitchen for the night, and he had taken his lantern and gone on his usual round outside the house. The kitchen was empty when he came back to it, but his tobacco pouch and pipe had been laid on the table, and under them was a scrap of paper torn from the black of a seedman's catalogue on which three words were written. Don't trouble, Ethan. Going into his cold, dark study, he placed the lantern on the table and, stooping to its light, read the, mess read the message again and again. It was the first time that Maddie had ever written to him, and the possession of the paper gave him a strange new sense of her nearness. Yet it deepened his anguish by reminding him that henceforth they would have no other way of communicating with each other. For the life of her smile, the warmth of her voice, only cold paper and dead words. Confused motions of rebellion stormed in him. He was too young, too strong, too full of the sap of the living to submit so easily to the destruction of his hopes. Must he wear out all his years at the side of a bitter, querulous woman? Other possibilities had been in him, possibilities sacrificed one by one to Zena's narrow-mindedness and ignorance. And what good had come of it? She was a hundred times bitterer and more discontented than when he had married her. The one pleasure left her was to inflict pain upon him. All the healthy instincts of self-defense rose up in him against such waste. He bundled himself into his cold coonskin coat and lay down on the box sofa to think. Under his cheek he felt a hard object with strange protuberances. It was a cushion which Zena had made for him when they were engaged the only piece of needlework he had ever seen her do. He flung it across the floor and propped his head against the wall. He knew a case of a man over the mountain, a young fellow about his own age, who had escaped from just such a life of misery by going west with the girl he cared for. His wife had divorced him and he had married the girl and prospered. Ethan had seen the couple the summer before at Shad's Falls where they had come to visit relatives. They had a little girl with fair curls who wore a gold locket and was dressed like a princess. The deserted wife had not done badly either. Her husband had given her the farm and she had managed to sell it. And with that and the alimony, she had started a lunchroom at Bettsbridge and bloomed into activity and importance. Ethan was fired by the thought. Why should he not leave with Maddie the next day instead of letting her go alone? He would hide his valise under the seat of the sleigh, and Zena would suspect nothing till she went upstairs for her afternoon nap and found a letter on the bed. His impulses were still near the surface, and he sprang up, relit the lantern, 
and sat down at the table. He rummaged in the drawer for a sheet of paper, found one, and began to write. Zena, I've done all I could for you, and I don't see it as been any use. I don't blame you, nor I don't blame myself. Maybe both of us will do better separate. I'm going to try my luck west, and you can sell the farm and mill and keep the money. His pen paused on the word, which brought home to him the relentless conditions of his lot. If he gave the farm and mill to Zena, what would be left him what would be left him to start his own life with? Once in the West he was sure of picking up work, he would not have feared to try his chance alone, but with Maddie depending on him the case was different. And what of Zena's fate? Farm and mill were mortgaged to the limit of their value, and even if she found a purchaser, it itself an unlikely chance, it was doubtful if she could clear a thousand dollars on the sale. Meanwhile, how could she keep the farm going? It was only by incessant labor and personal supervision that Ethan drew a meager living from his land, and his wife, even if she were in better health than she imagined, could never carry such a burden alone. Well, she could go back to her people then and see what they would do for her. It was the fate she was forcing on Maddie. Why not let try it herself? By the time she had discovered his whereabouts and brought suit for divorce, he would probably, wherever he was, be earning enough to pay her to pay her a sufficient alimony, and the alternative was to let Maddie go for it alone with far less hope of ultimate provision. He had scattered the contents of the table drawer in his search for a sheet of paper, and he took up his pen, and as he took up his pen, his eye fell on an old copy of the Bettsbridge Eagle. The advertising sheet was folded uppermost and he read the seductive words, Trips to the West, Reduced Rates. He draw the lantern nearer and eagerly scanned the fares. Then the paper fell from his hand, and he pushed aside his unfinished letter. A moment ago, he had wondered what he and Maddie were to live on when they reached the West. Now he saw that he had not even the money to take her there. Borrowing was out of the question. Six months before, he had given his only security to raise funds for necessary necessary repairs to the mill, and he knew that without security, no one at Starkfield would lend him $10. The inexorable facts closed in on him like prison warders, cuffing a convict. There was no way out. None. He was a prisoner for life, and now his one ray of light was to be extinguished. He crept back heavily to the sofa stretching himself out with limbs so leaden that he felt as if they would never that they would never move again tears rose in his throat and slowly burned their way to his lids as he lay there the window pane that faced him growing gradually lighter inlaid upon the darkness a square of moon suffused sky a cricket tree branch crossed it a branch of the apple tree under which on summer evenings he had sometimes found Maddie sitting when he came up from the mill Slowly the rim of the rainy vapors caught fire and burnt away, and a, pure, and a pure moon swung into the blue. Ethan, rising on his elbow, watched the landscape whiten and shape itself under the sculpture of the moon. This was the night on which he was to have taken Maddie coasting, and there hung the lamp to light them. He looked out at the slopes bathed in luster, the silver-edged darkness of the woods, the spectral purple of the hills against the sky, and it seemed as though all the beauty of the night had been poured out to mock his wretchedness. He fell asleep, and when he woke, the chill of the winter dawn was in the room. He felt cold and stiff and hungry, and ashamed of being hungry. He rubbed his eyes and went to the window. A red sun stood over the gray rim of the fields, behind trees that looked black and brittle. 
he said to himself, this is Matt's last day, and tried to think what the place would be without her. As he stood there, he heard a step behind him, and she entered. Oh, Ethan, where were you all night? She looked so small and pinched in her poor dress, with the red scarf wound about her, and the cold light turning her paleness sallow, that Ethan stood before her without speaking. You must be frozen, she went on, fixing lusterless eyes on him. He drew a step nearer. How did you know I was here? Because I heard you go downstairs again after I went to bed, and I listened all night, and you didn't come up. All his tenderness rushed to his lips. He looked at her and said, I'll come right along and make up the kitchen fire. They went back to the kitchen, and he fetched the coal and kindlings and cleared out the stove for her while she brought in the milk and the cold remains of the meat pie. When warmth began to radiate from the stove and the first ray of sunlight lay on the kitchen floor, Ethan's dark thoughts melted in the mellower air. The sight of Maddie going about her work as he had always seen her on so many mornings made it seem impossible that she should ever cease to be a part of the scene. He said to himself that he had doubtless exaggerated the significance of Zena's threats and that she too, with the return of daylight, would come to a saner mood. He went up to Maddie as she bent above the stove and laid his hand on her arm. I don't want you should trouble either, he said, looking down into her eyes with a smile. She flushed up warmly and whispered back, No, Ethan, I ain't going to trouble. I guess things will straighten out, he added. There was no answer but a quick throb of her lids, and he went on. She ain't said nothing any she ain't said anything this morning. No, I haven't seen her yet. Don't you take any notice when you do. With this injunction, he left her and went out to the cow barn. He saw Jotham Powell walking up the hill through the morning mist and the familiar sight added to his growing conviction of security. As the two men were clearing out the stalls, Jotham rested on his pitchfork to say, Daniel Burns going over to the flats today noon. And he see take Maddie's trunk along and make it easier riding when I take her over in the sleigh. Ethan looked at him blankly and he continued. Miss Frome said the new girl be at the flats at five and I was to take Maddie then so she could catch the six o'clock train for Stamford. Ethan felt the blood drumming in his temples. He had to wait a moment before he could find his voice to say, oh, it ain't so sure about Maddie's going. That's so said Jotham indifferently, and they went on with their work. When they returned to the kitchen, the two women were already at breakfast. Zena had an air of unusual alertness and activity. She drank two cups of coffee and fed the cat with the scraps left in the pie dish. Then she rose from her seat and, walking over to the window, snipped two or three yellow leaves from the geraniums. Aunt Martha's ain't got a faded leaf on them, but they pine away when they ain't cared for, she said reflectively. Then she turned to Jotham and asked, What time do you say Daniel Byrne be along? The hired man threw a hesitating glance at Ethan. Round about noon, he said. Zena turned to Maddie. That trunk of yours is too heavy for the sleigh, and Daniel Byrne will be around to take it over to the flats, she said. I'm much obliged to you, Zena, said Maddie. I'd like to go over things with you first, Zena continued in an unperturbed voice. I know there's a huckabuck towel missing, and I can't make out what you done with that mat safe that used to stand behind the stuffed owl in the parlor. She went out, followed by Maddie, 
And when the men were alone, Jotham said to his employer, I guess I better let Daniel come around then. Ethan finished his usual morning task about the house and barn. Then he said to Jotham, I'm going down to Starkford. Tell them not to wait dinner. The passion of rebellion had broken out in him again. That which had seemed incredible in the sober light of day had really come to pass, and he was to assist as a helpless spectator at Maddie's banishment. His manhood was humbled by the part he was compelled to play, and by the thought of what Maddie must think of him. Confused impulses struggled in him as he strode along to the village. He had made up his mind to do something, but he did not know what it would be. The early mist had vanished, and the fields lay like silver shield under the sun. It was one of those days when the glitter of winter shines through a pale haze of spring. Every yard of the road was alive with Maddie's presence, and there was hardly a branch against the sky or a tangle of brambles on the bank in which some bright shed of memory was not caught. Once, in the stillness, the call of a bird in a mountain ash was so like her laughter that his heart tightened and then grew large, and all these things made him see that something must be done at once. Suddenly it occurred to him that Andrew Hale, who was a kind-hearted man, might be induced to reconsider his refusal and advance a small sum on the lumber if he were told that Zena's ill health made it necessary to hire a servant. Hale, after all, knew enough of Ethan's situation to make it possible for the latter to renew his appeal without too much loss of pride, and moreover, how much did pride count in the ebullition of passions in his breast? The more he considered his plan, the more hopeful it seemed. If he could get Mrs. Hale's ear, he felt certain of success, and with fifty dollars in his pocket, nothing could keep him from Maddie. His first object was to reach Starkfield before Hale had started for his work. He knew the carpenter had a job down the Corbury Road and was likely to leave his house early. Ethan's long strides grew more rapid with the accelerated beat of his thoughts, and as he reached the foot of the schoolhouse hill, he caught sight of the Hale sleigh in the distance. He hurried forward to meet it, but as it drew nearer, he saw that it was driven by the carpenter's youngest boy and that the figure at his side, looking like a large upright cocoon in spectacles, was that of Mrs. Hale. Ethan signed for them to stop, and Mrs. Hale leaned forward, her pink wrinkles twinkling with benevolence. Mr. Hale? Why, yes, you'll find him down home now. He ain't going to work this afternoon. He woke up with a touch of lumbago, and I just made him put on one of the old Dr. Kidder's plasters and set right up into the fire. Beaming maternally on Ethan, she bent over to add, I only just heard from Mr. Hale about Zena going over to Bettsbridge to see that new doctor. I'm real sorry she's feeling so bad again. I hope he thinks he can do something for her. I don't know anybody round here's had more sickness than Zena. I always tell Mr. Hale I don't know what she'd have done if she hadn't had you to look after her. And I used to say the same thing about your mother. You've had an awful mean time, Ethan Frome. She gave him a last nod of sympathy while her son chirped to the horse, and Ethan, as she drove off, stood in the middle of the road and stared after the retreating sleigh. It was a long time since anyone had spoken to him as kindly as Mrs. Hale. Most people were either indifferent to his troubles or disposed to think of it natural that a young fellow of his age should have cared without repining the burden of three crippled lives. But Mrs. Hale had said, You've had an awful mean time, Ethan Frome, and he felt less alone with his misery. If the Hales were sorry for him, they would surely respond to his appeal. 
He started down the road toward their house, but at the but at the end of a few yards, he pulled up sharply, the blood in his face. For the first time, in the light of the words he had just heard, he saw what he was about to do. He was planning to take advantage of the Hale's sympathy to obtain money from them on false pretenses. That was a plain statement of the cloudy purpose which had driven him and headlong, driven him headlong in to Starkfield. With the sudden perception of the point to which his madness had carried him, the madness fell and he saw his life before him as it was. He was a poor man, the husband of a sickly woman, whom his desertion would leave alone and destitute. And even if he had the heart to desert her, he could have done so only by deceiving two kindly people who had pitied him. He turned and walked slowly back to the farm. Chapter 9 at the kitchen door, Daniel Burns sat in his sleigh behind a big-boned gray who pawed the snow and swung his long head restlessly from side to side. Ethan went into the kitchen and found his wife by the stove. Her head was wrapped in her shawl, and she was reading a book called Kidney Troubles and Their Cure, on which she had to pay extra postage only a few days before. Zena did not move or look up when he entered, and after a moment he asked, "'Where's Maddie?' Without lifting her eyes from the page, she replied, I presume she's getting down her trunk. The blood rushed to his face, getting down her trunk. Alone? Jotham Powell's down in the woodlot, and Daniel Byrne says he daren't leave that horse, she returned. Her husband, without stopping to hear the end of the phrase, had left the kitchen and sprung up the stairs. The door of Maddie's room was shut, and he wavered a moment on the landing. Matt he said in a low voice, but there was no answer, and he put his hand on the doorknob. He had never been in her room except once in the early summer when he had gone there to plaster up a leak in the eaves, but he remembered exactly how everything had looked, the red and white quilt on the narrow bed, the pretty pincushion pin cushion on the chest of drawers, and over it an enlarged photograph of her mother in an oxidized frame with a bunch of dyed grasses at the back. Now these and all other tokens of her presence had vanished, and the room looked as bare and comfortless as when Zena had shown her into it on the day of her arrival. In the middle of the floor stood her trunk, and on the trunk she sat in her Sunday dress, her back turned to the door and her face in her hands. She had not heard Ethan's call because she was sobbing, and she did not hear his step till he closed the door behind her and laid his hands on her shoulders. Matt! Oh, don't, oh, Matt. She started up, lifting her wet face to his. Ethan, I thought I wasn't ever going to see you again. He took her in his arms, pressing her close, and with a trembling hand smoothed away the hair from her forehead. Not see me again? What do you mean? She sobbed out. Jotham said you told him we wasn't to wait dinner for you, and, and I thought... You thought I meant to cut it? He finished her he finished for her grimly. She clung to him without answering, and he laid his lips on her hair, which was soft yet springy, like certain mosses on warm slopes, and had the faint woody fragrance of fresh sawdust in the sun. Through the door, they heard Zena's voice calling out from below, Daniel Byrne says you better hurry up if you'll want him to take that trunk. They drew apart with stricken faces. Words of resistance rushed to Ethan's lips and died there. Maddie found her handkerchief and dried her eyes. Then, bending down, she took hold of the handle of the trunk. Ethan put her aside. 
You let go, Matt, he ordered her. She answered, it takes two to coax it round the corner. And submitting to this argument, she he grasped the other handle and together they maneuvered the heavy trunk out to the landing. Now let go, he repeated. Then he shouldered the trunk and carried it down the stairs and across the passage to the kitchen. Zena, who had gone back to her seat by the stove, did not lift her head from her book as he passed. Mattie followed him out the door and helped him to lift the trunk into the back of the sleigh. When it was in place, they stood side by, side by side on the doorstep, watching Daniel Byrne plunge off behind his fidgety horse. It seemed to Ethan that his heart was bound with cords, which an unseen hand was tightening with every tick of the clock. Twice he opened his lips to speak to Mattie and found no breath. At length, as she turned to re-enter the house, he laid a detaining hand on her. I'm going to drive you over, Matt, he whispered. She murmured back. I think Zena wants I should go with Jotham. I'm going to drive you over, he repeated, and she went into the kitchen without answering. At dinner, Ethan could not eat. If he lifted his eyes, they rested on Zena's pinched face, and the corners of her straight lips seemed to quiver away into a smile. She ate well, declaring that the mild weather had made her feel better, and pressed a second helping of beans onto Jotham Powell, whose wants she generally ignored. Maddie, when the meal was over, went about her usual task of clearing the table and washing up the dishes. Zena, after feeding the cat, had returned to her rocking chair by the stove, and Jotham Powell, who always lingered last, reluctantly pushed back his chair and moved toward the door. On the threshold, he turned back to say to Ethan, "'What time will I come around for Maddie?' Ethan was standing near the window, mechanically filling his pipe while he watched Maddie move to and fro. He answered, "'You needn't come round. I'm going to drive her over myself.' He saw the rise of color in Maddie's averted cheek and the quick lifting of Zena's head. I want you should stay here this afternoon, Ethan, his wife said. Jotham can drive Maddie over. Maddie flung an imploring glance at him, but he repeated curtly, I'm going to drive her over myself. Zena continued in the same even tone. I wanted you should stay and fix up that stove in Maddie's room before the new girl gets here. It ain't been drawing right for nigh on a month now. Ethan's voice rose indignantly. If it was good enough for Maddie, I guess it's good enough for a hired girl. That girl that's coming told me that she was used to being in the house where they had a furnace. Zena persisted with the same monotonous mildness. She'd better stay there then, he flung back at her. And turning to Maddie, he added in a hard voice, You be ready by three, Matt. I've got business over at Corbury. Jotham Powell had started for the barn and Ethan strode down after him aflame with anger. The pulses in his temples throbbed and a fog was in his eyes. He went about his task without knowing what force directed him or whose hands and feet were fulfilling its orders. It was not till he let out the sorrel and backed him between the shafts of the sleigh that he once more became conscious of what he was doing. As he passed the bridle over the horse's head and wound the traces around the shafts, he remembered the day when he had made the same preparations in order to drive over and meet his wife's cousin at the flats. It was little more than a year ago on such soft, on such a soft afternoon with a feel of spring in the air. The sorrel, turning the same red-binged eye on him, nuzzled the palm of his hand in the same way, and one by one all the days between rose up and stood before him. 
He flung the bearskin into the sleigh, climbed into the seat, and drove up to the house. When he entered the kitchen, it was empty, but Maddie's bag and shawl lay ready by the door. He went to the foot of the stairs and listened. No sound reached from him from above, but presently he thought he heard someone moving about in his deserted study, and pushing open, open the door, he saw Maddie in her hat and jacket, standing with her back to him near the table. She started at his approach and, turning quickly, said, "'Is it time?' "'What are you doing here, Matt?' he asked her. She looked at him timidly. "'I was just taking a look round, that's all,' she answered with a wavering smile. They went back into the, into the kitchen without speaking, and Ethan picked up her bag and shawl. "'Where's Zena?' he asked. "'She went upstairs right after dinner.' She said she had those shooting pains again and didn't want to be disturbed. Did she say goodbye to you? No, that was all she said. Ethan, looking slowly about the kitchen, said to himself with a shudder that in a few hours he would be returning to it alone. Then the sense of unreality overcame him once more, and he could not bring himself to believe that Maddie stood there for the last time before him. Come on he said, almost gaily opening the door and putting her bag into the sleigh. He sprang to his seat and bent over to tuck the rug about her as she slipped into place at his side. Now then, go along, he said with a shake of the reins that sent the sorrel placidly jogging down the hill. We got lots of time for a good ride, Matt, he cried, seeking her hand beneath the fur and pressing it in his. His face tingled and he felt dizzy as if he had stopped as in the Starkfield Saloon, on a zero day for a drink. At the gate, instead of making for Starkfield, he turned the sorrel to the right, up the Bettsbridge Road. Maddie sat silent, giving no sign of surprise, but after a moment she said, Are you going round by Shadow Pond? He laughed and answered, I knew you'd know. She drew closer under the bearskin, so that, looking sideways around his coat sleeve, he could just catch the tip of her nose and a blown brown wave of hair. They drove slowly up the road between fields glistening under the pale sun, and then he bent to the right he bent to the right down a lane edged with spruce and larch. Ahead of them, a long way off, a range of hills stained by mottlings of black forest flowed away into round white curves against the sky. The lane passed into a pine wood with boles reddening in the afternoon sun and delicate blue shadows on the snow. As they entered it, the breeze fell and a warm stillness seemed to drop from the branches with the dripping needles. Here, the snow was so pure that the tiny tracks of wood animals, the tiny tracks that the wood animals had left on it, intricate lace-like patterns, and the bluish cones caught in its surface stood out like ornaments of bronze. Ethan drove on in silence till they reached a part of the wood where the pines were more widely spaced. Then he drew up and helped Maddie to get out of the sleigh. They passed between the aromatic trunks, the snow breaking crisply under their feet, till they came to a small sheet of water with steep wooded sides. Across its frozen surface from the farther bank, a single hill rising against the western sun through the long conical shadow which gave the lake its name. It was a shy, secret spot, full of the same dumb melancholy that Ethan felt in his heart. He looked up and down the little pebbly beach till his eye lit on a fallen tree trunk half-submerged in snow. That's where we sat at the picnic, he reminded her. The entertainment of which he spoke was one of the few that they had taken part in together, a church picnic which 
on a long afternoon of the preceding summer, had filled the retired place with merrymaking. Maddie had begged him to go with her, but he had refused. Then, toward sunset, coming down from the mountain where he had been felling timber, he had been caught by some strayed revelers and drawn into the group by the lake, where Maddie, encircled by, by facetious youths, and bright as a blackberry under her spreading hat, was brewing coffee under a gypsy fire. He remembered the shyness he felt at approaching her in his uncouth clothes, and then the lighting up of her face and the way she had broken through the group to come to him with a cup in her hand. They had sat for a few minutes on the falling log by the pond, and she had missed her gold locket and set the young men searching for it, and it was Ethan who had spied it in the moss. That was all, but all their intercourse had been made up of just such inarticulate flashes when they seemed to come suddenly upon happiness as if they had surprised a butterfly in the winter woods. It was right there I found your locket, he said, pushing his foot into a dense tuft of blueberry bushes. I never saw anybody with such sharp eyes, she answered. She sat down on the tree trunk in the sun and he sat down beside her. You were pretty as a picture in that pink hat, he said. She laughed with pleasure. Oh, I guess it was the hat, she rejoined. They had never before avowed their inclination so openly, and Ethan, for a moment, had the illusion that he was a free man, wooing the girl he meant to marry. He looked at her hair and longed to touch it again and to tell her that it smelt of the woods, but he had never learned to say such things. Suddenly she rose to her feet and said, We mustn't stay here any longer. He continued to gaze at her vaguely, only half roused from his dream. There's plenty of time, he answered. They stood, looking at each other, as if the eyes of each were straining to absorb and hold fast the other's image. There were things he had to say to her before they parted, but he could not say them in that place of summer memories, and he turned and followed her in silence to the sleigh. As they drove away, the sun sank behind the hill, and the pine boles turned from red to gray. By a devious track between the fields, they wound back to the Starkfield Road. Under the open sky, the light was still clear, with a reflection of cold red on the eastern hills. The clumps of trees in the snow seemed to draw together in ruffled lumps, like birds with their heads under, the, under their wings. And the sky, as it paled, rose higher, leaving the earth more alone. As they turned into the Starkfield Road, Ethan said, Matt, what do you mean to do? She did not answer at once, but at length she said, I'll try to get a place in a store. You know you can't do it. The bad air and the standing all day nearly killed you before. I'm a lot stronger than I was before I came to Starkfield. And now you're going to throw away all the good it's done you. There seemed to be no answer to this, and again they drove on for a while without speaking. With every yard of the way, some spot where they had stood and laughed together or had been silent, clutched at Ethan and dragged him back. Is there any of your father's folks could help you? There isn't any of them I'd ask. He lowered his voice to say, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you if I could. I know there isn't, but I can't. She was silent, but he felt a slight tremor in the shoulder against his. Oh, Matt! He broke out. If I if I could have gone with you now, I'd have done it. She turned to him, pulling a scrap of paper from her breast. Ethan, I found this, she stammered. Even in the failing light, he saw it was a letter to his wife that he had begun the night before and had forgotten to destroy. 
Through his astonishment, there ran a fierce thrill of joy. Matt, he cried, if I could have done it, I would. Would you? Oh, Ethan, Ethan, what's the use? With a sudden movement, she tore the letter in shreds and sent them fluttering off into the snow. Tell me, Matt, tell me, he adjured her. She was silent for a moment, then she said in such a low tone that he had to stoop his head to hear her. I used to think of it sometimes, summer nights when the moon was so bright. I couldn't sleep. His heart reeled with the sweetness of it. As long ago as that? She answered as if the date had been long fixed for her. The first time was at Shadow Pond. Was that why you gave me my coffee before the others? I don't know, did I? I was dreadfully put out when you wouldn't go to the picnic with me, and then, when I saw you coming down the road, I thought maybe you'd gone home that way on purpose, and that made me glad. They were silent again. They had reached the point where the road dipped to the hollow by Ethan's mill, and as they descended the darkness, and as they descended, the darkness descended with them, dropping down like a black veil from the heavy hemlock boughs. I'm tired hand and foot, Matt. There isn't a thing I can do. He began again. You must write to me sometimes, Ethan. Oh, what good'll writing do? I want to put my hand out and touch you. I want to do for you and care for you. I want to be there when you're sick and when you're lonesome. You mustn't think but what I'll do, all right. You won't need me, you mean? I suppose you'll marry. Oh, Ethan, she cried. I don't know how it is you make me feel, Matt. I'd almost rather have you dead than that. Oh, I wish I was. I wish I was. She sobbed. The sound of her weeping shook him out of his dark anger, and he felt ashamed. Don't let's talk this way, he whispered. Why not? Why shouldn't we, when it's true? I've been wishing it every minute of the day. Matt, you be quiet. Don't say it. There's never been anybody good to me but you. Don't say that either, when I can't lift a hand for you. Yes, but it's true, just the same. They had reached the top of Schoolhouse Hill, and Starkfield lay below them in the twilight. A cutter mounting the road from the village passed them by in a joyous flutter of bells, and they straightened themselves and looked ahead with rigid faces. Along the main street, lights had begun to shine from the house fronts, and straight figures were turning in here and there at the gates. Ethan, with a touch of his whip, roused the sorrel to a languid trot. As they drew near the end of the village, the cries of children reached them, and they saw a knot of boys with sleds behind them scattering across the open space before the church. I guess this will be their last coast for a day or two, Ethan said, looking up at the mild sky. Maddie was silent, and he added, We were to have gone down last night. Still, she did not speak, and prompted by an obscure desire to help himself and her through their miserable last hour, he went on discursively. Ain't it funny? We haven't been down together, but just that once last winter? She answered. It wasn't often I got down to the village. That's so, he said. They had reached the crest of the Corbury Road, and between the indistinct white glimmer of the church and the black curtain of the Varnum spruces, the slope stretched away below them without a shed of light on its length. Some erratic impulse prompted Ethan to say, How'd you like me to take you down now? She forced a laugh. Why, there isn't time. There's all the time we want. Come along. His one desire now was to postpone the moment of turning the sorrel toward the flats.
Thank you for listening to Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton here at Carla Reads the Classics. You have just heard Chapter 8 and Part 1 of Chapter 9. Please do stay tuned for the conclusion of Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton here at Carla Reads the Classics. <laughs>